guys, welcome back to another episode of Hospitality TV. I want to give a quick shout out to Nelson's Photo Supplies in Point Loma, San Diego for letting us use their beautiful camera gear today for this episode. They're truly a family owned and operated uh, photo supply and print shop. So if you can, go check them out. Now onto the show. Today I have Eric Castro, hungry bartender, the creator of Bartender at Large. How are you doing today, sir? Doing well, my man. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I appreciate your time. So first and foremost, a big congratulations is in order. Cocktail Bar of the Year by Imbibe Magazine. Oh, for Raised by Wolves. Yeah, yes, thank you dude. so much. Yeah, our staff's over the moon, man. We couldn't be happier. It's nice to know that, you know, putting in all that hard work and like the really hard part of getting the bar open, getting the doors open. It's, it's nice to see that other people know what we were doing. Well deserved, man. Well deserved. The space is beautiful up there. Congratulations. So I'm super pumped to have you in today for two main reasons. One, I want to talk about the creation of the documentary you did, Bartender at Large, kind of your inspiration and execution behind that. And two, the fact that you are a successful bar owner operator um, in the city with, you know, polite provisions and, and raised by wolves. And, and you have another one in New York, right? Yeah, Boilermaker in New York. That's right. So okay, on first and first. All right. So yeah, I want to talk a little bit about those two things. Let's start with Bartender at large. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about kind of your inspiration and, and how you began to create this whole idea and then, and then move into the execution behind it. Shoot, the bartender large story is very fascinating, um, mostly because it's been a total evolution. I never went into it with one solid idea of what it was going to be. So I feel like part of the reason it's done so well, by the way, we just won Industry Podcast of the Year oh, no way, from Nightclub Bar um, in Vegas. Nice. So we're super excited about that. I feel like the reason it's done well is because we've allowed it to evolve. Um, it actually was conceived first as a documentary, and there's a Bartender Large documentary available online on Vimeo or Gumroad.com if yep, you like to check it out. Just saw it the other night. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, and we had a, um, you know, a pretty decent amount of success with that, and in the movie, the film did well, um, you know, sold a lot of copies, kind of, we got to screen it in I think 35 cities around the world. Oh, wow. It was wonderful. Uh, but then, you know, kind of, you know, the economics of making an independent film, folks, don't do it. I do not recommend it. It's not that easy to break even, you know. It's not like the bar biz where you buy a bottle of uh, booze and up uh, yep. charge it, right? So it, the, the film did really well. We'll probably do another one eventually. But that ended up spawning the podcast. And the Bartender at Large podcast has kind of taken on a life of its own and done its own thing. I mostly created it because I felt that there was a story in the industry and in the cocktail community that wasn't necessarily being told. What There's a lot of venues for, you know, like the home bartender. There's a lot of places for, you know, um, you know, how to make a daiquiri, how to make simple syrup at home, blah, blah. But I felt like there wasn't really much for the core career bartender. That's our market. Our market is the career bartender, uh, bar owners, bar industry. We're not there to cater to anyone else. You know, if other folks, you know, home bar bartenders and stuff want to tune in, that's awesome. We love to have them. But I feel like by catering to the career bartender, it allows us to kind of be what we're supposed to be and kind of scratch a niche that nobody was really catering to before. So let's go back a little bit. I went, when you first had the idea of doing this documentary, what was the end goal? I don't know, man. Just make a film and were you going to try to, what outlets did you want to try to push this film on? Like you, how did you convince, you had somebody go with you on the road to yeah. a bunch of bars, right? We filmed that entire movie with just three people. Who were like three people? Me, my wife, who served as a producer for the film, okay. and one of my former bartenders from Polite Provisions, who majored in film. So what, you, uh, his what was the conversation Williams. you had with this guy? Just, hey man, let's just get our stuff and go on a road trip for... <laughs> we went in, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. <laughs> we were pretty much just like, let's record everything and then throw it at the wall and see what sticks. So, which is actually kind of a fun thing to do for your first film. But I realized that we kind of, if I did it again, oh, it'd be so much more streamlined and so much more effective and so much easier. But I. 
I, I'm really glad that we were able to tell that story because the whole idea behind the film was let's go to places where where the, the story of the bartenders is being told. You know, mm -hmm. we can intentionally avoided San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, because I feel like there's already so much going on there yes. that we kind of, you can read about it. That's where all the press in this country is based out of. So you right. already know what's going on there. So we specifically decided to focus on places like Riverside, California, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Boise, Idaho, um, Arizona, a lot of places that kind of have great flourishing cocktail scenes, but nobody's really hearing about what's going on there. What were some of the places that you were most impressed by or people that you were most, that kind of like just shocked you and like, man, they're doing something really special here. I had no idea this was going on. I'm gonna tell you this. I was completely blown away by the cocktail community in this city, Boise, Idaho. I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing it. Everybody there pronounces it Boise. Boise, okay, that's Boise. right. <laughs> so Boise, Idaho had amazing craft cocktails, amazing food. They have a great vibrant beer scene, wine scene, and it's just this place I'd never really heard of. Apparently it's the most isolated state capital in the lower 48, and they kind of like it that way because they have their own little scene going on. Remember specifically, you know, we'd gotten there, we only took one day off the entire time we, we were filming the documentary for about five weeks. So we had a, um, one half day and we were like, okay, cool, we're all done, Let, let's go get something to eat or let's get a drink. So me and my wife head over to the first bar that comes on our right, we just happen to stumble in. And as I walk in, I order an old fashioned, my wife orders a cocktail and when the guy goes to make my old fashioned, he puts on a pair of gloves, he reaches in, he grabs like an ice block and a Japanese ice cutting knife and just starts trimming it down. I'm like, where the hell am I at, man? I'm just at some <laughs> random bar in Boise and this right. guy's like giving me this amazing experience. And because of, I tell everybody, if, if you find yourself in Boise, Idaho or even in the area, go there, it's a hidden gem, amazing food amazing cocktails, and it's also just, uh, if you go a little bit outside of the city, it's gorgeous, just beautiful landscapes. How many, city, how many cities did you say you guys hit up? I think like 14. Okay. I kind of slipped my mind now, but yeah, I'd say about 14. So, you know, what's so, I mean, one of the things that's so amazing about this whole thing to me is that you did something that you're passionate about. You kind of mm -hmm. went all in, right? Mm -hmm. I, you weren't really working per se during this time. No. Hit the road. You have a lot on the line. What, you had to have had some kind of goal that you were trying to hit, some type of metric. Did you guys have a big following before you started doing this? Not this really. I mean, we filmed with two Canon T4Is, okay. which you know you can buy used for like 200, yep. 300 bucks. Um, we stayed in Motel 6 and Airbnbs. We kept the that's budget insane, by the low way. The video, as hell, Yeah, dude. the video looks great. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought you would have had something. A lot bit. of editing we, that we did on that yeah. film was actually, a lot of the effects we did on that was to just hide the fact that it was just a little can of T4I. Right, right, right. Um, some little old school we, effects on there. Yeah, we yeah. did some effects to kind of make it, to, to camouflage so that the good footage would, ver would blend in better with the bad footage. And, you know, but the thing is, I think the reason why the film did well, even though it had like a micro budget, is because there's a lot of heart. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we, we tried to do our best to stay honest and tell the stories of the bartenders that we interviewed. And I think that we succeeded in that coming through. So if you're creating a documentary like this, who's your main people that you're trying to reach out? What are the channels you're looking for? I was deliberately reaching, trying to reach people who f were familiar with drinks but didn't quite know a lot about them. You know, someone like maybe somebody who's into beer, wine, spirits, and cocktails already and just kind of want to know a little bit about But about I'm thinking of more of like depth. the major platform to push it out to those people. Did you even know at that time no, what you we were didn't going know. for? Yeah. We had no idea what the hell we were doing. Who ended up being, who ended up being that? Um, luckily, we worked with a lot of spirits companies to kind of take it around the world. Got and, it, okay. And I think it did well at film festivals, 
because we didn't have any other competitors who did something on a similar topic. And you're going out and reaching out to film festivals to be like, hey, we did this. Would you consider putting this? Yeah, on we applied yeah. to a ton of film festivals. Only got into a, you know, maybe about 15% of them that we applied yeah. to. But from what I've heard, actually, that's a good number. Yeah, that's a good acceptance rate. And I just think that's so interesting too, because I think half of it is the creative side of what you're doing, and you obviously have the talent behind it to go interview these people mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, have engaging conversations with them. But then once you have this product, just as important is how you distribute it, right? Like reaching out to film festivals, trying to grow your brand. And I just think that there's a lot of people out there right now who are passionate about things um, in their lives. And now that they have these platforms to distribute, like Instagram, Facebook, podcasts, right? Like a lot more people are getting into it. Um, and it's hard sometimes to know what metric you need to hit. I mean, is it just based on an amount of followers before you can start I don't to monetize, know, man. you know? <laughs> I didn't know any of this stuff in advance. I mean, We'd already made the film and then that's when I was like, oh shit, I should probably start Googling how to submit to a film festival. <laughs> right. We figure that stuff out on the fly and honestly, I don't regret it. Sometimes I feel like you just have to, you just have to jump into the pool without yeah. checking the temperature. Yep. I'm a big believer in having the right people and the right people can fix an idea no matter, how, no matter what it is for the most part. They can either fix it or toss it out the window. There's an author that I really love, Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, where he says like, you're better off having a good team who knows nothing about the given topic than people who know a lot about the topic, but that just aren't motivated right. and don't have a passion for it. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I recently read um, an American original, the book about Walt Disney. And in there, he's just talking about, he tells a, a group of animators, like you guys are designing rides for an amusement park. And like, we don't know anything about engineering. <laughs> we don't know how to, you know, design rides. And he's just like, no, you have imagination, you have passion. That's all you need, figure it out. <laughs> That's awesome. And then obviously, I mean, the parks have done quite well. Right. So I feel like it's a little bit of that, that philosophy as well. So you said a couple of things that are interesting to me. You said if I were to do this again, I would streamline the whole thing in a much different oh, way. Oh, now I know how to do it. So what are a couple of things that you would do differently now if you were to do this whole thing again? You know, making a film, making a documentary particularly, I mean, you're essentially writing an article. So you kind of go into it with the premise of like, okay, this is the intro. We're going to talk about this topic, blah, blah, blah. Then we're going to pivot over to this direction. And you know, you kind of write your conclusion. It's almost like an outline. And I thought I figured that out on my own, but obviously it turns out people who know more about the subject have been doing it for years and decades really. Um, so I would go into it with that mentality now. Whereas like on our first documentary, I was just like, fuck it, let's just, let's interview everyone, see yeah. what happens. Maybe someone will give me a good quote. Instead of, if I did it now, I would go into it with the mentality of crafting a narrative from start to finish. Got it, okay, interesting. Um, well, I want to talk about a couple other things too, man. I think um, if we go into the kind of the bar ownership side of what you're doing and, and um, things that have been really successful for you, like Polite and obviously Raised by Wolves now, how do you approach creating a bar program these days? Do you look for inspiration like at a local level, at a national level, at a global level? I guess the way, the way I look at it, one of the best ways to kind of keep it in your mind is Whenever I do a consulting gig, I've been fortunate enough to do, you know, consulting and cocktails for a lot of, you know, great bars around the world. One thing I go into now, and I just try to be as honest and blunt as possible, I straight up ask them, like, okay, I'm your personal trainer, and I'm here to whip this bar into shape. Are you trying to lose a few pounds for the summer? Are you trying to go pro, or are you trying to compete on, like, a global scale? Mm -hmm. Are you trying to go to the Olympics? And I find by just being blunt with them and asking the questions that, that is on the front of their mind, I can best help them solve the problems that they have and get them a program that, that they're going to be happy with and above happy with. 
Because a lot of times you're gonna find that you might go into a, a bar and in your mind you're like, oh, I'm gonna do this like best bar program that anyone's ever seen. But that's actually not what they want. They just want their, their staff to be able to make daiquiris and old fashions and proper cocktails. Right. So, you know, to bring that from my own perspective, when I opened Raised by Wolves Polite Boilermaker, I was like, this, has, this is going to be one of the best bars in the world. And so I'm not, every, everything that I conceive of, everything I think of, I'm not trying to compete with the bar across the street. I'm not trying to compete with the bar across town. I don't give a fuck about what they're doing, to be honest. I'm trying to compete with the best bars in the world. And as long as I'm competing with the best bars in the world, you're always going to have an amazing program that's going to skunk the competition. So if I'm looking to judge a, a wine, for example, I can approach it in the way like, you know, if I want to see if this is a good wine or not, um, there's things that I can judge to make for myself to see if the wine is in balance for me. Like there's things that are like, is, are the tannin levels too high? Are they out of balance? Is the alcohol perceivably out of balance in this wine? If there's sugar, residual sugar in this wine, is there acidity to match it so that it's not out of proportion? There's things like this that I would look for to be able to decide whether or not this wine is in balance and is a great wine for the program that we have in place. Mm -hmm. How do you approach a cocktail to define its quality or whether or not it's, it's a well-made cocktail? I would say our criteria is very similar. To what, to what you're saying, like is, you know, certain things definitely cross over. Not all of them, but certain things do cross over, you know. The balance of sweetness with acidity, that is definitely a factor, particularly in a cocktail, you know, margarita, daiquiri, things on those um, lines. But, you know, the thing is that's a little bit different about cocktails is that the ABV is higher. So oftentimes with a cocktail, it's a, you have to remember that the cocktail is there to showcase the spirit. So the things I look for is you know, clarity of flavor. Is this drink, can I tell that it's bourbon, right? If it's a bourbon cocktail. If you can't tell if it's bourbon or rum or cognac, then that means there's too much stuff in there. There's too much yeah. shit in there going on in the drink. So the drink isn't really coming alive. You know, you want to make sure that it's in balance. And also you want to know what's the purpose for this cocktail. Because since cocktails are kind of, you know, crafted all a minute for the most part, they're, they can be a little more plug and play than most beverages. So because of that, you're like, okay, is this drink too sweet? Well, it is sweet. You know what, but it's an after dinner cocktail. It's a riff on the Alexander. It's supposed to be a little bit sweet. This is for people who want to drink their dessert instead of eat it. Right. You know, but that drink wouldn't work necessarily, you know, you know, on your, you're in a patio in Italy and it's, you know, hundred degrees out. That's not going to fly out there. That's not what necessarily people want. So you have to remember that the drink is supposed to serve a purpose. And if the drink can't serve that purpose, or if the flavors are muddy, if the flavors are cloudy, if it's out of balance, then you're not gonna have a good cocktail. Let me ask you this. So for somebody who is, say, in a bartender position, mm -hmm. right, has been bartending for several years, they're really good at what they do, and they are on the brink of having an opportunity to go open a bar as a lead bartender where they're gonna have to, you know, manage the costs of the bar program and the creation of cocktails. What are a couple of things that you might tell this person after having done so many of these projects, what are some things that, some crucial points of advice that you would tell them for them to be successful in doing this? I would ask them how much administrative um, experience they had. If you don't have any administrative experience, then that's something that you need to get in your back pocket ASAP. I generally don't recommend people become a bar manager for a new property unless they have a little bit of management experience already. At least, you know, being a lead bartender, that, that would even help a lot. And if they don't, to not be scared right away, sometimes, you know, you just gotta jump in with both feet. I would recommend reading a few books on business 
I feel like in our any industry, you recommend? Any in particular? oh my goodness, man, there's so many I recommend. Um, in, in particular, I feel like, you know, if I was doing a tiki bar or someone was doing a tiki bar, they would go grab a few books on tiki cocktails and like, learn about the culture. If they were doing a wine bar, they would read, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, windows of the world and yeah. really immerse themselves in wine. But when someone gets their first administrative leadership role, they don't treat that the same way. They should go get a couple books on, on leadership or management just because I feel like it's easy to see why, because in our industry, we don't fetishize that aspect. We don't fetishize what keeps the lights on. We fetishize the bitters and the ice cubes right. and the syrups and cordials and things right. of that nature. So I would tell them there's two that I really highly recommend. Um, one is called Creativity Inc. It's written by Ed Catmull, who's one of the co-founders of Pixar. And after he founded Pixar, he went and uh, restructured Disney animation as well, which had kind of fallen behind in the 90s. So that, that book's about managing creatives. I recommend it to everybody because bartenders, you know, we're like little artists and, you know, we can be sensitive, but we're creative as well. So, you know, it's about learning how to manage those egos. Another book I would recommend, this is more for people who aren't necessarily, you know, don't see themselves as reading a book on business is, oh my goodness, did I forget the name? It's um, Phil Jackson's book. Shit, I forgot the name of it. We'll plug it in. We'll yeah, yeah, in. yeah. Uh, Phil Jackson's book. And, but anyway, in his book, he talks about how he managed the bulls in the 1990s. And he, he kind of came in with like a Zen mentality of like restricting the ego and sacrificing yourself for the good of the team. And that book's great because it's an easy read. It's fascinating. You know, who's not going to, you know, want to read a book about the Chicago Bulls? Right. It's a really easy read, but there's so many fundamentals in there and so many important rules on how to deal with people and deal with egos and just manage talent that I feel like anybody should be able to engage with the book. Nice. Fantastic. Well, man, I can't thank you enough for your time today, dude. Best of luck in the future. My I'm man. sure I'll see you up there. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Guys, don't forget to follow Hospitality TV on Facebook. Uh, we have most of our videos going up on there on Instagram at Hospitality TV. And of course, we are streaming on the podcast at iTunes at Hospitality TV. Thanks so much. See you soon.